communion. So we're going through a book for Samuel, and through that book, we have uh, split it into three different series. Uh, the first series was Samuel, uh, is the first half of the book, first eight chapters. And then we move to a series called Saul, and then before we're done, we'll uh, go to a series called David. But we're in the middle of this series called Saul. And as we're looking at the series, we see that uh, Israel wanted a king and demanded a king, and, and God gave them what they wanted, said it's a bad idea and you're not going to like it. So he gave them a king, and the king Saul is it. So he started out pretty well and, um, and did pretty well. But as you're looking at Saul's life, these, these three chapters we're working through, 14, 15, and 16, or actually 13, 14, and 15, um, we want to see who Saul is. You're seeing a battle take place. We saw that last week. And you see Saul's heart rise to the surface. You see who he is, what he's anchored to, what he believes in. You see his, his ideology. You see everything about him. His heart comes to the surface just like our hearts come to the surface on a consistent basis. They'll always come to the surface, come to the top. And you're seeing his heart. And as a process of seeing his heart come to the surface, we're evaluating it. Is it connected to God? Is his heart right with God? And we, on series number three, I mean, as we're looking at this evaluation of his heart, and you'll see, just kind of a review through our notes, you'll see um, that his heart is not connected with God. The first time we started talking about the war, we'll see that Saul believed that his way would be a way to save God's people. His way would be a way to save God's people. How are you saved? How are you saved? Here, I'll give you an Old Testament gospel and the New Testament gospel because it's the same. God is holy. That's where it starts. God is holy and he wants a relationship with you. Let's talk about God in the gospel. Now let's talk about you. You are not holy. <laughs> You're not Holy. And the only way you can have a relationship with God is to come with a sacrifice in your hand. All the way through the Old Testament, they're sacrificing lambs, sacrificing goats. Because you cannot approach a holy God or have a relationship with a holy God unless there's a blood atonement that takes place. That's an Old Testament gospel. But the Old Testament gospel does nothing but point to the gospel, which is through Jesus Christ. The ultimate sacrifice who shed his blood so we can be saved. That's a gospel. Do I want a relationship with God? If I want a relationship with God, the only way I can have a relationship with God is to believe that Jesus came to earth, left heaven, came to earth, meaning that he is God, that he died on the cross for our sins, and he went to the grave, and he rose again three days later. And I can look at God face to face and say, God, I am saved as a result of what he has done. I have a relationship with you as a result of what he has done. Now, what does that do to you? What does that do to Saul? What does that do to David? What does that do to any of us? It changes, it changes everything. It gives us a whole new perspective of me, you, of us. It gives you a whole new perspective of the world. It gives you a whole new perspective of, of the word. Because if you're going to anchor into something that strong and something that powerful... And then he says, here's my word. Believe what it says. You can have a whole new perspective of the word. It's the power of the living gospel. So here's Saul. Saul believed that his way would be a way to be saved. If Jesus sent his 
son, <laughs> he is the only way to be saved. Let's just kind of put it into even personal terms because as we're observing Saul, we want to observe us as well and ask us the questions. Saul believing that there's a only way, that he could be saved through a different way rather than God or people could be saved through a different way than God uh, brings things into our perspective. Let me ask in this context, can you get to heaven by my sacrifice? Saul believed that you could get to heaven by his sacrifice, by his mind, by his will, by his desires. That's where he was, that's where he was at with the people. The same way with me. You think I could get there, you can get to heaven by my sacrifice? Do you think you get to heaven by my good works? Do you think you get to heaven by my instructions? No, you get to heaven by Christ's sacrifice, Christ's word, Christ's instructions. This is the only way to get to heaven. See, Saul was careless. He's going a completely, entirely different direction than God is going. And we saw that a couple weeks ago. The other thing we saw a couple weeks ago is that Saul believed that he could get God's saving power the way that he wanted to get God's saving power. God gave him instructions on how to save his people. He did the opposite direction. Put him on himself rather than on the priest, Samuel. We saw that a couple weeks ago. His heart's on the wrong track. That's why when Samuel confronted him, said, you are going to lose the kingship and God will be looking for a man after his own heart. Saul's going the different direction. And then last week we talked about a war. And during this war, what do you see through this whole war? Is what we talked about all last week. You see Saul's heart, who's on the wrong track, come to the surface. And you get to recognize who he is. You get to recognize who he is. These are the points from last week. You can observe where a man stands by observing his fears. So we can watch Saul. We can say, where does Saul stand? Watch his fears. Saul was not standing with God's power. He was hiding last week. Saul was not standing in God's will. He was running from God's will. Saul was not standing in God's wisdom. He was standing on his own wisdom. He did the math during this war that was going to take place, and he found out that he was outnumbered. So what did he do? <laughs> he hid. He wasn't standing on God at all. Why? Because his foundation of God wasn't there. The foundation of God wasn't there. Last week, another piece in our notes, you can locate a man's home by observing what he holds on to. Saul's home was this world. Saul's home was his comfort. Saul's home was his safety. He doesn't believe that God is the one that carries a saving power. He believes that it's in more in his hand, the more in his strength, the more in his mind. And as a result, his heart has come to service and his home is being revealed. You can see a man's power by observing his mission. Saul's mission was himself. Therefore, it made him weak. Made him weak. That's what we talked about last week. We observe Saul's heart. And when you observe his heart, we can start asking the same questions to us. And go, oh my, where am I at? Is my heart on the right track with the gospel? And as a result of it being on the right track, are these things coming out of me or is something else coming out of me? We also located another person's heart last week. Remember who it was? It was his son, Jonathan. His heart was on display as well. Remember Jonathan? He looked at the odds, the same odds that Saul looked at. And when he saw the odds, it's like, oh boy, we're going to be defeated unless we go in God's power. Unless we go in God's power. See, that's Jonathan's mind. Saul's mind, we're going to be defeated. I'm going to run and hide. Jonathan's mind, well, we're going to be defeated. we got to go in God's power. So what does he do? He, he sneaks out of the camp. and doesn't even tell his father. And he takes his arm barrier with him. 
and he climbs to the crags of the rocks, meaning he's going to go up into a hill to fight the Philistines, to fight the enemies. He's going on God's power. And the conversations that we heard last week were just absolutely amazing. He's talking to his armor barrier. He says to his armor barrier, when they see us down here, they will have the upper hand and they will come and attack us. But don't worry, we have God. Armor barrier is like, okay, we'll see how it works. But then Jonathan says, just let you know, if their upper hand, they can come and attack us. They know they have the upper hand. They can wipe us out. We're only two. They're a whole army. If they don't come and attack us, I just want you to know we're going to charge anyway. <laughs> Even though they have the upper hand under the power of God. So they look down and they see Jonathan his arm barrier and they say, oh my goodness, there's two people down there. God's people. But they don't charge. So what does Jonathan's arm barrier does? He charges. <laughs> Two people against an old army. He gets to the top, and they kill 20. I mean, if you look at the passage, he takes a sword. Remember, there's only two swords out there. Saul has one, and he's in hiding. Jonathan has the other. He takes his sword, and he, you can tell the battle because he's fighting so aggressively and so hard that he's not finishing them off. Because if you look at the passage, the armor barrier is kind of finishing them off. So he kind of does the first hit on one, first hit on another, and the armor barrier is like with his helmet knocking the guy's dead after he, after he kills him under the power of God. And then God looks down and says, there is somebody faithful. And then he, what does he do? He shows up. Shows up in power and glory. And the confusion and fear hit the Philistine army. 20 die, but now the whole army is in fear because they're not being attacked by Jonathan in his arm barrier. They're being attacked by God because God's the one that fights the battles. So when it happens and they're all sitting there and confusion Saul pops up his head remember the coward he's he's hiding pops up his head and said God is fighting this army maybe I should join (laughs) he wasn't gonna take the first step he wasn't gonna be faithful Jonathan was in fact when Saul joined the army he sees God is fighting the army he looks at the people because he has 600 people and says find out who's not here who snuck out of the camp see Saul knows that God will fight with a faithful person so he knows there's a person that should be here, but they're not there up there. They found out that Jonathan and his arm barrier were gone. And then Saul's like, we got to get into this show. So he leaves with the 600 people to get into the show, to get into the army, because God has now fought in the army. And then we see everybody who's hiding in the cracks and hiding in the tombs and hiding in the cisterns. They're starting to file that direction as well. And so they're filing the direction to get ready to get into the army. And right before they're getting ready to go into war that evening, we start chapter 14, verse 24. This is what Saul says to his men. And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So Saul laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. (laughs) Saul shows up. Where does he show up from? From the pomegranate tree in hiding. And the first thing he shows up and tells his people, Jonathan's out there fighting the war. The first thing he says, I want you to know that we are going to fast <laughs> before we go into the war. Until my armies are avenged, until Philistines are avenged by my hand, you will not eat. What is Saul doing? What is Saul doing? He's being driven by his ego driven by the ego. Jonathan's out there killing everybody. Who's in charge if you're the one that's being led by God? Jonathan is. Well, Saul's now taking power back to him. 
says, okay, I'll just tell you guys, you're not going to eat anything until I am avenged by my enemies. To make it all about him. And then he exerts his authority to let people know that you are in charge, that he is in charge. You will be cursed if you eat. You can tell this guy, he's, he's not feeling like he's in charge. <laughs> and he needs to get his position back. So that's this move to get his position back. This vow is stupid for three reasons. First reason it was stupid is that he didn't even consult God. Saul really care about God? No, he didn't care about God. He's got to protect his ego. He's got to get back in the fight. He didn't consult God. The other reason why it's stupid is because you don't take your soldiers and charge into battle with no food. I mean, you feed your soldiers before they go into battle. That's why the people are like, what are you doing? They're shaking their head at Saul as well. This is, this is stupid. We're starving. We need energy. If we're going to charge the Philistines tomorrow, then, then we've got to, we've got to have some food. Well, Saul's not even thinking about that. The other thing that's interesting about this vow is that not everybody was there. Because this next passage, you're going to see that Jonathan didn't even hear it. Let's look at the next passage, 25. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping. You can see that these guys are hungry through the description of that word. The honey's there, but the honey is dropping. It looks good. But no one, even though it looked good, put his hand to his mouth. For the people feared Saul. They feared the oath that Saul put. But Jonathan shows up. Jonathan had not heard his father's charge and the people with the oath. So he put out the tip of his staff that was in his hand and he dipped it into the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth. And his eyes became bright. Ah, oh, that's good. This guy's been fighting. This guy's hungry. Grabbed the honey. Wanted food. Then one of the people said, your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, cursed be the man who eats food this day. The people were faint. Then Jonathan said, my father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today the spoils of their enemies that they found. For now, the defeat among the Philistines has, been, has not been great. Jonathan broke the vow, you know, it's in this passage. But then he rebukes his father in front of everybody. My father has troubled this land. Doesn't listen to his father and then says, my father has troubled the land. You see who's carrying the power? You see who's carrying the strength? Somebody who is not the king. His name is Jonathan. Then what's going to take place is they're going to charge into war. All of them with empty stomachs to conquer the Philistines because once they conquer the Philistines, then the vow is, is over and they can eat all they want. So 31, they struck down the Philistines after they charged into war. That day from Michmash to Ahajalon. And the people were very faint. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen, calves and slaughtered them on the ground. And the people ate them with the blood. You see this, that they, they pounced on the spoil. Remember, the vow is broken now. They redeemed, they killed the Philistines. So now the vow is broken and they're starving. So what do they do? They pounce on the spoil. Well, what does that mean? 
we had a, 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 a trunk or treat uh, last week um, during Halloween. And I, I have an issue that if I go to a trunk or treat party um, with all the candy around, that I pounce on the spoil. I mean, I shove it in my mouth. One for you, one for me. 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 Now, I know that I have issues with this, and so I have issues with it. I ate dinner, lots of dinner, before I showed up. So I don't pounce on the spoil. So I don't eat all the candy. This is what it, they're starving. So as soon as they took the Philistines out, they just pounce on the spoil, and they ate them with the blood. Ate them with the blood. Are they supposed to eat them with the blood? No. Go back to the Old Testament law, Leviticus 7.26. Moreover, you shall eat no blood whatever, whether of fowl or of an animal, in any of your dwelling places. Whoever eats any blood, that person shall be cut off from his people. What does it mean, ate them with the blood? Let me tell you what it does not mean. It does not mean a raw steak. The reason why I say that is because I get accused in my house for eating raw steak when the blood is just juicing. It doesn't taste good unless you have raw steak. And I don't want my wife to use the Old Testament law against me and say, stop eating that steak. Because that's the way you're supposed to eat a steak. Raw, bloody, juicy. Just get it up to body temperature in those things. That's the way I eat my steaks. It does not mean that. I just want to tell you guys, if you like your raw steaks, that's all right. What you do is you bleed the animal out by cutting an artery. The blood comes out, and that is the sacrifice that ends up taking place. You're supposed to spill the blood before you eat it. 33, then they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Let every man bring his ox of his own sheep and slaughter them here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. Saul's doing something good there. Taking a position of leadership and saying we need to follow what God is doing. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night. And they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. He's doing something else that's good. An altar is given to the Lord. Then Saul said, let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, let us draw near to God here. You have a mission, Saul, but maybe we should consult God. (laughs) Maybe we should ask God. Maybe we should be on God's side instead of just do what you want. Saul thought, oh, maybe I should. 37. Saul inquired of God. Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But God did not answer that day. (laughs) The priest has to say, Saul, you're on a mission. It's God's mission. Get off your high horse. Maybe you need to consult God to see what we should do in God's mission rather than just go by yourself. Rather than just make your own decision, rather than make your own charge and go with your own strength and go with your own power, maybe you should consult God. And Saul says, oh yeah, I'll consult God. And so what he does, he consults God and guess what happened? God didn't answer him. God didn't say anything to him. For Samuel 14, Saul should have consulted God before they went into the war 
And we see that he did not when God wanted to talk to him. We see that here in 18. So Saul said to Ahajah, bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. We just need to go to war. We don't need God. God wants to speak. God wants to talk. He's telling the priest, don't listen to him. Let's just go into war. Now Saul says, okay, now we'll listen to him. Now God's not speaking to him. Saul's not, God is not speaking to him. Why? Saul's heart's on the wrong track. Saul's going a completely entirely different direction than God is going. God is the one that fights a war, and Saul is going in the opposite direction. Saul takes charge because he wants everyone to know that he's the boss. That's the reason why he's taking charge. He's not taking charge because he wants people to follow God. He's taking charge because he wants everybody to know he's a boss. Saul sets the rules, but he's setting the rules for what? For his personal reasons. For his position, for his strength, for his prestige, for people recognizing him, for him being the king. He says, don't eat meat with the blood. It's spiritual authority that he's pulling forward. Yes, it was a righteous thing, but, you know, Paul, Saul wanted to stand up and say, oh, don't eat it with the blood. Correcting them, but he's looking more in the mind of a spiritual authority in his position. He built an altar to the Lord, but again, this is a spiritual position. He gives instructions to the priest, but the priest says, wait, don't we need to consult God? He says, okay, I'll consult God, and then he consults God, and God doesn't talk, God doesn't answer. Saul is starting to evaluate his relationship with God. And as he is evaluating his relationship with God, say, God is not speaking to me. It's not good. So what does he do about it? That is what Adam and Eve does. If your relationship is struggling with God, you, you point the finger to somebody else. <laughs> That's exactly what he does. I mean, if Saul's heart was on the right track, if he evaluated his relationship with God, he would look inside of himself and say, I am messing up staying away from God. But he doesn't do that. This is what he does. And Saul said, come here, all the leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has risen today. For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among all the people who answered him. He said, there is sin in our camp. It's not on me. (laughs) Welcome, Saul. God is not speaking to us because there's sin in our camp. Who's out there sinning? He's not looking at himself. He even brings up the name Jonathan. Why does he bring up the name Jonathan? (laughs) Because Jonathan is running. Jonathan is fighting. Jonathan is following Jonathan is being obedient. Jonathan is acting like the king that Saul should act like. What's he going to do? He's going to blame it on Jonathan. Verse 40. Then he said to all Israel, you shall be on one side. And I and Jonathan, my son, will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, do what seems is good to you. Therefore Saul said, O Lord, God of Israel. Why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or in my son Jonathan, O Lord, God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is in your people Israel, give Thuman. And Jonathan said, it's Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. 
42, then Saul said, cast a lot between me and my son Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. And Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of my staff that was in my hand. Here I am, I will die. They ended up casting straws to see who is the one that is carrying this in. And Jonathan lost in the process of casting straws. And after he lost, Saul looks at him and says, God is not speaking to us because of you. We know that God's not speaking to him because of Saul. But Saul is saying, God is not speaking to us because of you, Jonathan. Tell me what you have done. And what does Jonathan say? Jonathan says, well, I disobeyed my dad. (laughs) I disobeyed you. I grabbed some honey when I wasn't supposed to grab some honey. He didn't say I disobeyed God because he never disobeyed God. He says, I disobeyed you. And what does Saul say? Saul says, as a result, you shall surely die. And Saul said, God, do so to me, and more also, you shall surely die, Jonathan. I'm going to kill you because you're not following God. Because Saul's the one that's not following God, but he's pointing the finger at Jonathan for not following God. You know, for those who know the Bible, you're going to see the last half of, of Samuel, actually the whole last half of Samuel, of, of Saul trying to kill King David. That's what he's trying to do, the whole last half of uh, um, Samuel. And we think, boy, he's really trying to kill him. He's trying to kill his son Jonathan right now to protect his ego, to protect his image, to protect his position. It's his heart. It's rising to the surface. Many people get mad because David is a man after God's own heart. And we look at Saul and say, oh, poor Saul. All he did was one little sin. No, these three chapters are showing that his heart is on the wrong track. And as a result, all these behaviors are coming out. 45, then the people said to Saul, shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Oh, those words have got to cut Saul. Should he die? He's more powerful than you, Saul. (laughs) Should he die? He's connected to God and you're not, Saul. That's what the people said. They probably slipped the words a little bit. But this is what they said. Should Jonathan die, who has worked a great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground. For he has worked with God this day. So the people rescued Jonathan so that he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines. And the Philistines went out to their own places. Jonathan was saved that day because the people stood in, in the center of Saul and Jonathan. So you can't kill him. He's following God. He's following God. And God is the one that fights these wars. And Saul, obviously, you don't know that. But Jonathan does. And you see Saul rise to the occasion to kill the threat that tackled who? Him. To kill the threat that tackled him. Again, I want to look and add to our list because next week we're going to see a rejection of Saul as being king. And as we're adding to this list of what's coming to the surface from Saul's heart, I want you guys to observe, is it me? Am I in the part of this? Is, is this where I'm at? Is this where I am standing Number one, you can see the extent of a man's pride by seeing where he gives credit. Yes, again, we're talking about this gospel that is powerful. 
Jesus left heaven. He came to earth. He died. He rose so I can have salvation. That gives me not one ounce of pride. I don't get one ounce. The reason why is because he did all of it. Here we look at Saul. Saul's not giving credit to God. Why? Because his pride. He's not giving credit to Jonathan. Why? Because of his pride. He's not giving credit to the soldiers. Why? Because of his pride. Everyone in this story should have credit except one man. It should be Saul. It should be Saul. But he's still living for himself. He's still living for himself. It's easy for us to cast a stone at Saul, but we can look at our own lives. When we look at our own lives, we can see ourselves, do I give credit where credit is belong? Do I give credit where credit is due? Being number one, that God did all the work for my salvation, all credit, honor, and glory to him, and all I'm gonna do is fall on my face and serve him for the rest of the life as a result of what he's done, not what I could do? That's the center of where we give credit. But then also, is it other people should have credit more than you? Do we look outside of ourselves or do we look inside ourselves? This passage is given to us and the reason why I believe it is given to us is because we see a man who is self-absorbed and he's living that way. Letter A, the most difficult task a person can complete is to get his eyes off themselves. When I was a youth pastor, we used to play a game, and it was we had a quarter. Um, everybody got five quarters. As they hung on to five quarters, what they'd do is they'd walk around uh, the gym, and they were forced to have a conversation. And the way they were forced to have a conversation is like, if somebody asks you a question, you have to answer them. And, uh, and the only rule of the game is you cannot say I. That's it. Say I. If you say I, the person that made you say I, you have to give them a quarter. And so, and you don't want to lose your five quarters, you're out of the game. So people would just have these conversations and you would not believe the noise that was in the room. And the reason why is every other word, do you know what we say? We say I. <laughs> I, didn't, I did not know that until I played this game. It's like, you said I. No, I didn't. Well, you said I. No, I didn't. I mean, we always say I. It all comes on us. I mean, that's a sin. That's the nature. Me, 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 me. That's all about me. That's the way Saul was living. Is that the way we live? Is that the way we live? It's all right that we always say I, but we're supposed to look outside of ourselves and towards others. Number two, we can identify a man's priority by watching his actions. Saul's priority was himself, and his decisions were dictated by his priority. And that was who? That was himself. Letter A, a person will always live for their master. Who's your master? We all have one. Saul's master was who? Himself. <laughs> that was his master. <laughs> Saul's master was himself. What's your master? There's four different areas that you can find your master. First area that you can find your master is you can look in your checkbook. <laughs> in your checkbook, your master will be given to you. You'll be able to find it. Where do I spend my money? And all of a sudden, you've seen the master that you've sold yourself to. The next area is you evaluate your time. Where do I give my time? Where do I give my energy? Where do I give my effort? And when you evaluate your time, you can see exactly where you're selling yourself to. You can see who your master is. The next area that if you want to find your master is 
you identify what you think about when you have nothing else to think about. You identify what you think about when you have nothing else to think about. I heard somebody said, if you identify the thing that you think about when you have nothing else to think about, you found your religion. Because that's the one that consumes your mind. And the third one is you can identify your master by identifying the things that are controlling your emotions. Fear, the anxiety, the things. What is driving you? The anger, what is driving you? What is controlling your emotions? All of us are selling to a master. What is it? When we look into these areas, and I look at these areas of my life, I think, oh my goodness, it's often me. What does God want you to do? He just wants you to break <laughs> and not keep making decisions like Saul does as you being the master. Because you look like a fool, just like Saul does, if you are the master. God wants to be the master. So the decisions of your life will go a direction that he wants you to go, not a direction that you're necessarily aiming at or a direction that you want to go. Number three, you can see a man's love by watching where he is loyal. Saul was not loyal to God, obviously. He was not even loyal to Jonathan. He was pretty much just loyal to himself. Letter A, your life will be sold to something that you love. You will give your life away to something that you love. God created us to do that. In fact, you hear this, this love. Love is an energy trying to express itself. That's what love is. And you will give it away to the object of your love. It's built inside of our nature. It's built inside of our being. This morning we're taking communion. The reason why we're taking communion is because you're going to see the bread representing the broken body of Jesus. And you're going to see the juice representing the blood spilled out to you. You will sell yourself to the thing that you love. When you go up to the table today, God is wanting to sit on your throne. He's wanting to sit on your throne. He's wanting to be your first love. He's wanting to be your master. He's wanting to be your Lord. And, and why does he want it? I'll just tell you that your blessings come your way if you give it to him. He wants it because he wants a relationship with you. Therefore, as we're taking the bread and we're taking the juice, come to the table this morning and say, I'm driven by my love. God, your body was broken for me your love was spilt, your blood was spilt for me for the purpose to display your love that I have received in my heart. Be my master. That's what I want to encourage you to do. If you do not know Jesus this morning, you've never accepted Christ, and you don't even know what is this gospel, what is this? This is what I want to encourage you to do. I encourage you to come forward and take communion. It's kind of like an altar call. Come forward and take communion. When you're taking communion, just say these words God, I believe. That your body was broken for me. I believe that your blood was spilt for me. That is the only reason I can have a relationship with you. Please love me. Please save me. Forever and ever and ever you have a king. You have a Lord of your life if you do. God, thank you so much for your word through your word, God, we see all the gross, sick, corruption stuff that we see in the world today. 
But God, as we look at your word, we still see you and your beauty and your grace in the midst of it. Thank you, God, for giving us a story of Saul, somebody who is not connected with you, and we can observe him and see which way he's going. And as we observed him, I pray we'll go the opposite direction of Saul, and we'll go, God, to your feet. Thank you for giving us a story of Jonathan, somebody who's connected to you, walking in the way that you've asked us to walk. I just pray, God, that this story, God, would empower us to love you more and know you more and seek your will more. We love you in Christ's name. Amen.